Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Lachlan. Welcome to Pirates Talk, presented by JAG Physical Therapy. Thank you so very much for your company. Seton Hall is down to its final four games of the regular season. They sit third in the Big East at 11-5. Overall, they're 18-9. They've won three in a row, and yet the Pirates have guaranteed nothing when it comes to a bid to the NCAA tournament. How can a team with that record in that conference with Hallmark wins over nationally third-ranked UConn and nationally fifth-ranked Marquette be on the bubble? Does the eye test mean nothing? What about their on-court success? Well, to find out where the hall stands and why, I'm thrilled to have Brad Wachtel as my guest today. Over the past several years, Brad has become one of the best bracketologists in the media landscape. His opinion on how the NCAA basketball tournament field of 68 will shake out is highly regarded. He's a former basketball administrator in the Big Ten and Big East conferences, and he's a Jersey guy from East Brunswick. You can follow Brad on X at at Brad underscore Wachtel and check out his latest projections at factsandbracks.blogspot.com. That's factsandbracks.com. B-R-A-C-K-S dot But you'll hear from the Bracket Maven next after this message from JAG Physical Therapy. JAG Physical Therapy, providing rehabilitative recovery from sports and soft tissue injuries to knee, foot, ankle, hip, shoulder, elbow, and back injuries. Schedule your appointment with JAG Physical Therapy today and meet their experienced team of physical therapists, occupational therapists, athletic trainers, and exercise physiologists invested in your full recovery. Get back the life you love at JAG Physical Therapy, the most awarded physical therapy provider in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. Recently named to the 2022 Inc. 5000 list. For physical therapy, occupational therapy, and athletic training services, go to jagpt.com. Brad Wachtel, thank you so very much for joining me. I know this is an incredibly busy time for you. Not only are you uh, putting your brackets together and weaving your way through all the information that comes across your desk and your algorithm, but in addition, you're a full-time school teacher. So I don't know how you find the time, but thanks for giving some of it to me. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what I love doing. I mean, you know how it is. When you have a job that you're so passionate about, even though it's not your main job, you don't consider it work. It's, it's more of uh, I just love to find out about every single team, how they're doing, and what it's going to look like for them entering NCAA tournament time. Well, we're going to spend – Sometime, of course, speaking specifically about Seton Hall, but for the listening audience, just want to get an overview uh, about how you got into this business. Uh, I know you were a basketball administrator at Rutgers, also uh, with the Big East, too. And just wondering, though, how, how did you start figuring out or wanting to figure out who's going to get in and why? Yeah, so I started this way back in 2006. So I, I'm actually a Rutgers graduate. So I was a, a basketball manager at Rutgers. Um, from 2001 to 2005, I always wanted to be part of an NCAA tournament team. While I was at Rutgers, it never happened, which, you know, for me, that was very upsetting. Um, but this is something that I started doing because it kept me close to the NCAA tournament. Um, and it started very small. And then it just, you know, I, I got good at it. And I just, I love learning about what the committee looks at, what you need to do to get into the NCAA tournament. And you learn something new every single year. Like nobody's, nobody's perfect at this, but you got to take a little bit every single year. Um, and, and I started doing it in 2006, ended up doing it for about four years until I, 
as you mentioned, I worked at Rutgers for six years under a couple coaches. And then back in 2016, I started up again uh, where I continued my bracketology and I've done it ever since. As I mentioned in the open, you are uncanny in your prediction. So I'm, I'm wondering how much of it is an algorithm that you have, how much of it is, as you mentioned, kind of seeing what the committee is thinking each and every year, adjusting your thought press process for what they've done in the past. How much is it tea leaf reading? How much is it pure math? It's a combination of, of, of everything, to be honest with you. Um, you know, some people say it's, it's pattern recognition. Um, that's how kind of like how I re like to refer it. Um, like the, the thing about the NCAA and the selection committee, especially over the course of the last 15, 20 years, so many things have changed. We used to use the RPI. We used to use, you know, your record against the top 50 of the RPI way back when, the top 100. Then all of a sudden they started introducing the net um, and the quadrant systems. So you have to keep changing. You have to keep up with what the committee is looking for. And now, you know, they, they really focus on metrics. It's a, it's a big part of what the committee is looking at when determining who's in, who's out, and what seeds you get. So what I like to do is I like to get all the information on a team sheet that the committee looks at, get that into my own Excel spreadsheet, and then I have all the information in front of me. I'm comparing teams, just like comparing resumes for any you know, employer out there. You're looking for who's got the better resume? Who are you going to hire? You know, what makes the most sense? What does the committee, what has the committee done in the past that they will do again in the future? And you hope that the committee is going to be consistent. And I will say for the most part, they are pretty consistent, which is something that is nice. So it, it sounds a lot like what's happened over the last, say, 10 years or so in my business, the hockey business, where analytics is playing a much larger role. It supplements the uh, eye test, but it's really, really important when general managers are sitting down and coaches are sitting down and plotting out uh, their strategy. It, it seems like what you said, that's what the committee has tried to do over the last 15 or 20 years. Take the eye test out of it where, oh, well, this team happens to be really good in a really good conference. They must be better than someone who's in a lesser conference. But wait a minute, the numbers don't necessarily support that. Is that accurate? That's pretty accurate. And I think just like, like you mentioned in hockey and the same thing is in baseball and football, analytics are at the forefront. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there that criticize analytics and, and that's fine. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion. But here's the thing about analytics. Analytics is information and information is a good thing. It doesn't mean you, you use analytics and information by the book and it doesn't mean everything is done by analytics only, but it's a piece of the puzzle. And I think the committee has done a good job of just saying you know, your analytics aren't everything. Your metrics aren't everything. But it gives us some more information about the team. Um, and it's not going to make our final decision by any means, but it's just extra information. I think that's something that, look, the, the more information we could get about a particular team, I think it's a great thing. It is better because I've always been skeptical of how a committee, I know they work on it throughout the year, but now you sit down under the pressure of Selection Sunday and you're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff and you're thinking, did you really see Team 68 that often compared to Team 62 
to really know what the difference is, or 72, a team that's outside looking in. And so this is just information that helps them make that decision. You mentioned quads. What's a quad one? What's a quad two? Explain that. And it goes down to quad four, of course. Sure. So it, it can it could sound confusing, but it's actually quite simple once you get the hang of it. So for a quad one opponent, so let's say, for example, Seton Hall is playing a team that has a net between one and 30, and they're playing them at home. That's considered a quad one game, whether you win or you lose. If Seton Hall is going on the road and they're playing a team that has a net between one and 75, that is also considered a quad one game. So the committee does that because obviously it's harder to win on the road. So if you can beat a top 75 team on the road, that's equivalent to beating a top 30 team at home. So that's quad one. Quad two, at home, Seton Hall's playing a team at home. Quad two is between nets between 31 and 75. And then on the road, quad two is between 76 and 135. Um, so, so really, it's, again, if you beat a team in the net top 135 on the road, you know, a team that's in the net 135, and if they're 135 total, they're not going to the NCAA tournament, but the committee is looking at that as it's still a quality win. Um, so, and then quad three and quad four get, get worse and worse. Um, but, I, but I think what's, what's important is, and I think what the committee has shown over the years, they always say, who have you beaten? Where have you beaten them? And I think this quad system kind of reflects that. Um, and I think, it's a, I think it's a really good thing because it gives uh, more credence to teams that do well away from home. And quad one and quad two wins are big. Quad four losses are the death knell, correct? They are. And there are teams that can survive it if you have really strong quad one wins. Um, there are going to be some teams in the NCAA tournament receiving at-large bids that have quad four losses. Not many teams. There will be a couple. Um, but, yeah, when you receive that quad four loss, it's it obviously sticks out like a sore thumb. And it's also killing your own metrics it's all it's killing your own net um which is a part a, a factor in what the committee looks at um when determining seating and and who's in which is why i know while seton hall fans are confident that the team at the end of the day will receive a bid that DePaul game is just sitting there saying you can't lose that one it's at home DePaul at this point hasn't won a game in the big east it should be an easy win for seton hall but if not, boy, everything just blows up in the Pirates' faces. Yeah, it, it, it's something you want to avoid. You don't want to get into that because then all of a sudden you are really on the bubble and not only are you dealing with all other bubble teams who are probably winning games against quality teams, you're also going to have to deal with bid stealers that come out of mid-major conferences um, that won't be at-large teams, but let's say you know a team like FAU, Florida Atlantic, out of the American Athletic Conference. Let's say they don't win their conference tournament. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to get an at-large bid, but there's also going to be an auto bid out of that league as well, which means one less at-large bid. So you don't want to be in that situation. And even though how you play at the end of the year doesn't matter, the committee sees that. There's going to be some recency bias, as much as people will not admit it, it's it's going to be a problem. So definitely try to avoid that. 
And how is the net? How does that come about? It, uh, obviously, it's strength of schedule and a whole bunch of other factors. What are the keys to determining what a team's net is? So to be honest with you, the NCAA has not released the formula to the net. So we don't exactly know what goes into it. We do know it's there's there are a few items. We don't know how much they're weight. So some of that what goes into it is your efficiency numbers. So for example, offensive efficiency, the number of points you score per 100 possessions. And the opposite, defensive efficiency, number of points given up per 100 possessions. Um, how you play away from home, how you play at home, all these sorts of things, strength of schedule, all these items are like mixed into one. Um, and it, it makes it difficult to figure out what, how, how it's moving around. You know, we can, we can see patterns and stuff, but there's no definitive answer because again, we don't know how everything is weighed. Um, but it, it boils down to when you win games, good things typically happen. And when you lose games against bad teams, you're in trouble. Seton Hall's most recent net, which came out today, I guess, as we record this on Monday, 61. That seems good. Is it good? So as a reference, the team with the worst net to receive an at-large bid um, was 77. Um, so from that point of view, it's fine. 61 is not bad. However, when you're looking at teams that are in the field right now, and, and for me, all the teams that are in the at-large field, Eaton Hall has the worst net of any team that's in the at-large field. So from that vantage point, it's not a particularly great thing. Um, but now here's the thing about the net. The committee views the net as a predictive metric and a result-based metric. But what I've seen over the years, it's predominantly predictive. You can have a team with a net in the 70s getting that large bid. You can also have a team with a net in the 40s not getting that large fit. So what it boils down to, and, and what I'm referring to as the predictive metric, uh, the net is one, Ken Palm is another that a lot of people have heard of. Um, so, so basically what it, what it comes down to is predictive metrics are used for seeding purposes as opposed to inclusion purposes for the NCAA tournament. So which is why when it comes to Seton Hall, I, for me, I'm afraid to raise them up a little too high up the seed line based on the fact that their net is the worst of any at-large team. Um, that being said, their quality of wins, their, their, their records and their quadrant numbers are really good. And I think that kind of offsets it. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what the committee thinks of them. Well, they are above 500 in both combination quad one and quad two wins. And, and, and we'll see there's still four more games, including Wednesdays against Creighton to be played. So we'll see what happens. I mentioned in the open on Twitter, you can be followed at Brad underscore Wachtel. And of course your projections projections are at facts and bracks.blogspot.com. Your most recent tweet, most recent uh, uh, information you put out uh, had Seton Hall as among the last four buys. I think you explained why, how do they move off of that in your eyes? And what exactly yeah, do you so mean by last four buys? Sure. So the last four by, so last four in there, they are not in the last four in, which is a good thing. So there are, they are the four, one of four teams right above the last four in. And so I have them as a 10 seed right now in the field, which is solid. It's a solid seed. Now for them to really move up, 
it's you know it's it might be an unreasonable ask, but by winning at Creighton or UConn, I know these are arguably the two toughest games on their schedule. Um, but with the way that their predicted metrics lie right now, with a net in the sixties, their Ken Palm is fifty six and their BPI is sixty seven. Those are all predictive metrics. The only way you're really going to get those up is if you can have a quality outing against one of those teams, whether it's beating them or being ultra competitive. And I think for Seton Hall's sake, at the very least, you want to be competitive in both of those games, even if you don't win them, because a competitive loss may actually boost your metrics a little bit. Um, So, you know, it's going to depend on the results of those games. If they happen to not win either of those games, um, as far as getting above a 10 seed, you're going to need to beat Villanova. You're going to need to beat the Paul. And then it's going to depend on how you do, who you play in the Big East tournament. If you beat another quality team in the Big East tournament, I think there's definitely room for growth. So the tournament still means something aside from guaranteeing one team the automatic bid. Yeah, so, so what we've seen over the years, and the committee kind of refutes this, um, the first couple days of the, of the Big East tournament and all tournaments across the country They typically count towards seeding, inclusion. But the last two days, so the the Big East semifinals and championship, from what we've seen, don't really have much weight. Um, So it's it's unfortunate because every game should matter, and we're not seeing that. So I've looked at a lot of my my seedings, like, over the years, and, you know, a few times, like, how I seeded the field – uh, on on the Friday before Selection Sunday or the Saturday morning was slightly better in certain cases than it was on Selection Sunday. So that is one of the reasons why it lets me leads me and a lot of other people to believe not all of those games are weighted the same. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Uh, I'm going to circle back near the end here to Seton Hall again, but I want to talk about a couple of things. Uh, and and one is one of your recent tweets where you congratulated South Florida for being 25th in the AP poll. And so many fans, and myself included, when Seton Hall was getting votes, and I was like, hey, we're moving up the ladder. But you said they have no chance, South Florida, for an at-large bid. Why? What are the writers missing there? Or, or does it really matter? Are we talking about two different things? Media folks okay. voting no, for top no, 25 that's... and, and uh, how the committee looks at who gets in. Yeah, so it's, it's a little different. Um, the great part about college basketball, as opposed to college football, where rankings are everything, college basketball rankings don't matter. The only, the only way, the only thing college basketball rankings matter to, it matters to fans. It could matter to some coaches, um, how, their, how their universities are viewed. But, and it matters to betting lines as well. Um, but other than that, it has no reflection. The NCAA tournament is no reflection on the top 25. I mean, there's a team receiving votes right now, Arizona State, who's receiving nine votes at the moment. I mean, they are 14 and 14 overall with a net in the 130s. So the rankings are meaningless. You know, it's just, it's, they're fun to see. But other than that, you just, you, you really don't put a, a whole lot of uh, juice in those. It makes the alumni puff their chests out a little bit, but it might not matter come Selection Sunday. And let's face it, if you sit down at your local establishment on a stool and having an adult beverage, it's fun to talk about. But yeah, uh, it, it's not the influencer that 
most of us, many of us thought it, it once had. So how does a team, so a team like Seton Hall, they're locked into their Big East schedule. How do they schedule for better ranking and better chance? And, and I ask, I look at some of the top teams in this country from the Big 12 in particular, terrible strength of schedule. Like they are, they are scheduling the weak sisters of the poor, but they beat the heck out of them. And so they're, for their highly rankers, they do well in their in their conference as well. Is that is that the key? Beat up these uh, so, pay games and and then do well in your conference. There there's there's multiple ways to to really improve your seed, um, and it's something that a lot of coaches out there I don't think they pay enough attention to. The Big Twelve does because there's about eight or nine teams in the Big Twelve, like you mentioned, they play the worst of the worst teams. I'm talking like. For example, a team that's going to finish at the bottom of the Northeast Conference, bottom of the America East Conference, teams like that, and they just beat the tar out of them. They beat them by 40, and that kind of gets your net in, the, in a very good position. So, and, and like we said earlier, your net is for seeding purposes, so all of that helps. Now, the downside to scheduling those types of teams is if you happen to lose one of those games or if you happen to only beat those teams by 10 to 15 points, which is still a double-digit win, your metrics will still take a hit. And if you lose to them, God forbid, your metrics will take a tremendous hit. So it boils down to, how A, how good do you think your team is going to be? If you, if you think your team should walk over these teams and they never struggle in these guarantee games, by all means, go ahead and do it until they change the rules. Go ahead and do it. But there are other ways to do it. and. For me personally, one thing that I would do, if all these high major teams, they have a, a set of guarantee games. You know, if you're Pete in the Hall, if you're any team, any team that's trying to get an NCAA tournament bid and you don't want to schedule the worst of the worst, schedule teams that are going to be the best in lower level conferences. So, for example, and I'm not saying to schedule Vermont, but Vermont wins the America East every single season, uh, nearly every season. So teams like that that are going to be at the top of their league, you don't have to win by 40. If you can just beat them, that's going to be a that's it may not be a quality win, but it's going to help your metrics. Um, and and it's not and it's gonna help, of course, your strength of schedule, which is also extremely important, the non-conference strength of schedule, especially if you're a team that's typically sees themselves on the bubble. Um, so you know, a lot of people look at improving your schedule, playing the top teams that are out there. It's not all about that. Play your fair share of road games. Play some neutral site games. Try to get, try to improve and get road neutral wins prior to conference play. And, you know, Seton Hall is 6-6 six and six road neutral. I mean, that's a, that's a very good record for uh, a team that's on the, on the bubble or near the bubble. Um, so I think they've, they've done a good job away from home. The problem with Seton Hall this year is the not in non-conference play, they didn't pick up, you know, really any significant victories. So they're really doing all the hard work in conference play. Yeah, they had wins, but they struggled in the early going to beat those teams. And uh, you know, they didn't get that that runaway victory that that helps out. So yeah, you know, they're 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 paying for it a little bit. But Shaheen Holloway said right from the get-go, he was puzzled, but right from the get-go, he was saying, This team's good. I I I don't know why we came out and played a lousy first half. 
we wound up winning. But this team is good. I see them in practice. We're going to be good. And he's he's paying off on his on his word. So uh, we'll we'll see what happens down the stretch for them. Just off topic a little bit. I I think through all what you said about scheduling and what teams think about and what they maybe should think about in your opinion. I think we find out why Princeton, which is a good team generally, every once in a while there's there's a drop off there. Why they have it so hard? Because they're there's all risk and no reward for some of these high majors. No question. No question. And, you know, that's a team that, you know, a lot of these big New Jersey schools, they used to play Princeton. And, you know, it, the Princeton, Princeton is, a, is an interesting example just because of the way they play. And uh, over the years, you know, the Princeton offense is not what it used to be nowadays. But people are still afraid to play them because it's their Super Bowl. I mean, Rutgers played Princeton this year on a neutral court and lost. Um, the problem for, for Princeton's sake is, yes, they have a hard time scheduling teams, and they finally scheduled some decent teams in non-conference play, and those teams ended up being not very good. So in, for, for them, even though they won a lot of these games, they're not going to be able to get in that large bid, and it's really unfortunate the way it works out for a lot of mid-majors. Last few, we'll let you go. On Selection Sunday, give me a couple of teams that I will say the average or the Big East-centric fan or Big Ten-centric fan doesn't realize is going to get a bid? Like, are there some teams out there that, yeah, hey, wait a minute, they're, they're going to be in the field. You may not know about them, but they're there. Yeah, for sure. And I think one league you could point to is the Mountain West Conference. The Mountain West Conference is going to get more teams than the ACC, which is, which is crazy because the Mountain West Conference is not considered a high major league, but they have six teams that potentially can get into the field. Um, and from that league, there's a couple of teams I really like. I, I really like Colorado State. You know, it's a team that nobody really knows a whole lot about on the East Coast. But Colorado State beat Creighton on a neutral court earlier this season. So I always love to see mid-major teams that maybe you don't know much about, um, that, that find a way to get at large bit, that played another high-major team on a neutral site like, a home win is, is nice, but a win on a neutral court or a road win, of course, those is what really gets my attention. Those are what's impressive. And a team like Creighton, who, you know, of course, Seton Hall is about to play, we know how good Creighton is. Uh, so, for me, Colorado State is one. Um, another team that I would say that people aren't paying a whole lot of attention to is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the same league. Actually, you know what? Let's go to the Pac-12 in Washington State, a team that's never in the NCAA tournament. Right now, Washington State is a projected to be a six seed. Um, they beat Arizona, a projected one seed. They beat them twice. Um, and that's the reason why they're going to get into the NCAA tournament. For the first time, I think, since 2008, I believe. Um, so they're a team that's five and three against quadrant one opponents. And... They have a, like I said, beating Utah twice. Um, I'm sorry, beating Arizona twice. And they also beat a team, Boise State, out of the Mountain West on a neutral court. So I look for them to potentially sneak, sneak up on some teams. Um, so that, that's kind of how I see it. But yeah, there's always, it always ends up being the team that nobody's mentioning. You know, like last year, San Diego State, Florida Atlantic, um, that's the great part about the NCAA tournament. You never know who it's going to be. You just never know. Last one. How many Big East teams get in, assuming form holds the rest of the way? 
Yep. So, Whatever that is, by the way. Whatever form is. Creighton loses to St. John's after they beat UConn. Uh, go figure out college hoops. But anyway, if form holds, how many get in? Yeah, so if form holds, the way I see it is, obviously, you got UConn, you got Marquette. I'm going to say Seton Hall is three. Creighton is four. And right now, I'm going to say Providence and Villanova get in. I'm going to say six teams. Um, I don't see it happening for St. John's. St. John's is going to need a lot of help to get there. Still not out of the equation, but I'm going to go with six teams out of the Big East, and I think they're very much deserving. And to be quite honest with you, I don't want to play any of them. It is that kind of a conference, no question. It is a uh, get-in-your-face, get-down-and-dirty conference, uh, and they can play a smooth game, a team like UConn, or they can just beat the heck out of you in the back alley. Uh, Yeah, that's what the Big East is all about. Brad, thank you so very much for sharing your time and your insights. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's a very busy period. For those who are following along, how often do you update your projections? And uh, for those who don't, no, who are not following you, I guess, more accurately, who will now start following you. Uh, how often do you update uh, your, your projections? Yep, so I typically update them two times a week. I update them Monday morning and Friday mornings. But as we get closer to the tournament, so starting next week, I'm going to be updating probably every other day or when it really needs to be updated. Um, and again, like you mentioned, you could find me on Twitter at Brad underscore Wachtel. That's spelled W-A-C-H-T-E-L. Um, and I, I'd be very happy to answer any questions you have or any questions you have regarding my bracket. Well, I appreciate your answering my questions. I know the listeners will appreciate the invitation that you have offered. And thanks so much. And let's see what happens. It's the best time of the year for College Hoops. Thank you again. Thanks for having me, Matt. And that will do it for this edition of Pirates Talk presented by JAG Physical Therapy. I know I found Brad's insights to be very informative. I hope you did as well. Brad can be followed on X at at Brad underscore Wachtel. And you can read his projections at factsandbracks.blogspot.com. That's factsandbracks.blogspot.com. I thank him for taking time to speak with me. Of course, Seton Hall can take some of the drama out of Selection Sunday and make a surprising year even more so by taking care of business on the court over the next two weeks. Can they beat Creighton in Omaha on Wednesday? Can they knock off UConn again? Can they secure a top three finish in the Big East and a first round bye in the Big East tournament? All of that is possible. And who among us thought that in November? Thanks also to Jerry Carino, a good friend and friend of the show, who put me in contact with Brad, thus enabling the connection that brought Brad to Pirates Talk. If you haven't yet, give Jerry a follow on X at at NJHoopsHaven, where you can read his coverage of Seton Hall basketball and, in fact, the entire New Jersey hoop scene. And subscribe to the Asbury Park Press and APP.com, where he works. It's only through paid subscriptions that we can continue to receive the coverage that Jerry provides. And a shout-out to my good friend Pat Christensen, the sound engineer of the program and the writer and performer of the Pirates Talk theme. His work on the show is very much cherished. And thanks to you for your company. It's very much appreciated. Until next time, treat each other kindly, stay safe, be well, and go Pirates. Pirates.